LA is vast, vibrant, simultaneously stunning, as well as challenging and confusing. At Together LA, this city is our passion. We know that loving LA well starts with listening, pounding the pavement in search of the individuals invested in the flourishing of Los Angeles. These are the inspiring stories and real life interviews with the men and women who work to bring the gospel to LA in their unique ways. Thanks for joining us as we bring you closer to the heart of LA, one story, one voice, one neighborhood at a time. We are Tommy and Jojo, and this is the Together LA Listening Tour. Well, good morning, everyone. We are talking with a new friend that I'm just getting to know and that I am so impressed and so encouraged by, by not only what he's writing in his book, but just his journey. John Rittner, lead pastor at Ecclesia over in Hollywood. So good morning to you, John. Good morning, Tommy. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, I know a lot of times the folks in L.A., if you're hearing this from L.A., everyone knows who you are and, and knows what the church is. But for those outside of the U.S. or even different parts of the U.S., share a little bit about your journey to what you're doing right now and how you even got there. Yeah. Um, yeah, my journey starts a long way away from Hollywood. I'll tell you that much. Um I was a pastor at a church in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is a beautiful kind of small college town and also a retirement community from a lot of folks in the Northeast. And after seminary, was there working for my mentor for 10 years and was part of a team that kind of had the privilege of seeing a church grow from about four or 500 to about 3000. Um, and, you know, we were kind of in that in the mid 90s, early 2000s there in that church growth movement, like we were we were killing it. We were doing everything that we had all dreamed about in a church in that smaller community of seeing it explode and new uh, decisions for the Lord, but then also just kind of a, a great a depth of discipleship that we felt like was bringing people in from all over the community. And so by all of the old kind of metrics, uh, we were about as successful as we could have imagined, you know, uh, Sunday attendance growing, budgets growing, missional giving growing. We built the $16 million building in order to kind of have more people together in our services. And everything was kind of, you know, as Bill Hybels used to say, up and to the right, you know, I mean, everything was up and to the right in growth. And yet around year eight, nine, as I had kind of gotten all the way to the point in the org chart of basically being the executive pastor or the, the number two pastor and second communicator, I started realizing something inside of me was just not right. That I was kind of having a crisis. Like I should be um, you know, this was my best life now, so to speak, as a leader. And yet something didn't, didn't feel like it was clicking. And I began to try to identify that. And what I began to notice was I was kind of having a crisis uh, in my life. And, and part of it was a crisis of mission that I began to kind of look at the world around me and think, um, you know, are we actually having an impact in this community or are we just putting on the best programs for existing Christians? You know, one day I had a thought of like, I kind of feel like a, a program director on a Christian cruise ship you know, whose job it is to kind of entertain and active, activate and, uh, you know, put on activities for all the existing Christians who are looking for things to do with their time. And yet in the world around us, I started noticing needs and populations and, and areas where we weren't really having any impact out there. And so something about this, all the energy coming in versus going out began to kind of rub me the wrong way. Uh, and then I also kind of realized that so much of my time and energy was going into Sunday morning yeah, production. Yeah. And, I, and I really wasn't sure Sunday morning was meant to be the center of the Christian life. And, and that's clearly what it was in our format. And then finally, I just started looking around the country and realizing that so many of the, the leaders who were in churches like this 
we're beginning to have moral failures. We're beginning yep. to kind yep. of fall apart, you know, losing their ministries, losing their families. And I thought, I don't know if I want this. And so I didn't know what to do. I, I, I wasn't, you know, looking for other jobs or anything, but I was just having a hard time sleeping at night going, why, why do I feel this sense of unrest? And then by God's grace, one day uh, I invited in a missionary, uh, a gentleman who was uh, we supported, who was in Brussels, Belgium. And I just said, would you share with our staff of about 60, you know, would you share what you're doing in Europe? And the way he began to articulate ministry in Europe and the way he expressed the new paradigms of post-Christianity, it was as if a light bulb just went off in my head. And I realized, oh my gosh, everything he's describing are trends that I'm seeing in America. And yeah. part of why I'm sensing that the way we're doing church isn't working yeah. like it used to. And, and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit just gave me a little whisper in that staff meeting where he said, what if you could go to Europe and see the future of America mm. and experiment with a new way to be the church in that future reality and then come back to America and help prepare churches for what's going to come? And as someone who you know loves a good adventure, that felt kind of like a, a Lord of the Rings calling, like an epic quest. And I, I said, called my wife after that meeting and I said, we need to have my friend Carlton over tonight. And that night we began kind of dreaming about this, um, this vision of going over there. And so eventually nine months later, we took our family with our six-year-old and a four-year-old and we moved to Brussels, Belgium. And for uh, several years, we came alongside he and his wife and a, a small team there um, planting micro churches, yeah. neighborhood centric micro churches in the city of Brussels that related to each other as kind of a, a, a network. Uh, and so once a month, we all came together to celebrate the citywide movement. But the rest of the time, we all operated kind of on our own with a lot of local um, hyper, you know, uh, hyper local embedding in our context, yeah. so to speak. So, you know, what we called communes over there. So small neighborhoods in the city. Um, and so after three years of doing that, I felt like, hey, I I've learned a lot and we can talk about some of those learnings. But I thought that the journey was always about coming back to America. And so we began to be open to what could we, uh, where's a community that might be looking for some of the lessons that we've learned. And so uh, by God's grace, there were some common connections and this uh, opening out here in Ecclesia uh, came on our radar and uh, turned out that they were kind of themselves wrestling with their own uh, journey of reimagining church and not being such a come to us church, but more of let's go live for the, the blessing and benefit of the world church. And so I said, hey, I don't have all the answers, but I'm looking for a community to experiment with me. And it sounds like that's a good fit. So we've been experimenting together and trying to innovate and adapt the last five years to kind of recreate a church that we think fits the new context of post-Christianity better than the churches that we used to live in that were built for a Christian world. Yeah. So how does that look like with Ecclesia? I mean, do you guys still meet together on Sundays? How does that look like as you guys launch different community groups or smaller church groups? Yeah, you know, I think the best thing to, is to kind of um, think about the, the primary paradigm that we've been building around. And, and that is this idea of reclaiming the sentness of every disciple, you know, that we serve a sent and sending God, a God who, um, you know, the entire Bible is filled with this language of God sending his son and sending his spirit and sending his church and and sending his presence out into the world. Uh, and so much of kind of the uh, church growth movement has been about inviting the world to come to us. Yep, yep. And that and honestly, that worked in a Christendom culture where the 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 culture around us believed often what we believe. They believed our narratives, our yep, ethics. Yep. 
Um, they may have even celebrated some of our traditions and values. And so there was a, a common cultural language. Uh, but as that culture drifts away from the, the dominant narrative of Christendom and becomes more of a post-Christian culture in the West, the gap is, is too big for, for most people out in the world to jump into a Sunday morning service. And so what we've been trying to do is convince all of our community members and, and as a church to not think of the church as professionals, programs, yes. and property. Yep. 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 And to basically say that those things, that was the engine, the disciple-making engine in Christendom were programs, properties, yeah. and, yep. and professional yep. pastors, right? But what we wanna do is reimagine the church as disciple-making people. So every individual yep. person embraces the calling to make disciples and the space where you're gonna make disciples is not gonna be in this you know, Sunday morning sacred space. It's gonna be out in the everyday spaces of life, the places that you live, work, play, and create. And so you know, we've adopted that language <clears throat> um, that you know, many people refer to now as kind of first, second, and third spaces, place you live, work, and play. And so every one of our community um, can articulate you know, where are the spaces that they've already been sent as missionaries. And so it takes a little bit of a, a paradigm shift to go from thinking of yourself as just a Christian, right, in a church and thinking of the church as making disciples to seeing yourself as more of a disciple making missionary yep. and you're the one making disciples. We we still tend to think of that as something that only happens overseas, yep. right, yep. in yep. a in another culture. But when you begin to realize that the culture we live in now is doesn't have as much in common with, you know, the Christian faith anymore. You don't have to go anywhere, so to speak, to be sent. You just have to embrace your sentness in the world around you. And so a lot of what we do is about um, equipping, inspiring, and training our people to go live the life of Christ in the places where they are, and then how to come around other people and do that in a way. So that doesn't mean we've gotten rid of our Sunday mornings, yeah. but I will say our Sunday mornings are not oriented towards the non-Christian yeah. yeah, yeah, coming yeah. in and, and inquiring about faith. Our Sunday mornings are much more around uh, equipping, inspiring, and training up our existing believers and sharing stories of what's happened out in the world. Yeah. So Sunday is not the center. Sunday is the reporting back space, so to speak, you know, of what life happened out there. So we, we talk often about being like a seven-day-a-week church, you know, um, that celebrates on Sunday what God has done all the other days. Yep. Yep. I love this. You're like this entrepreneurial pastor, entrepreneurial ministry leader. And so I think a lot of times back in the early nineties, we both live in Chicago. There were big churches where you drive into this big church and you felt like you're watching a performance and you're entertained the seeker sensitive service. And then I bet you some of the younger people that is younger than you and I sat there and says, is this really what church is? Do I really want to be entertaining? Or do I want to do something where I get to make a difference in the communities that we lived in? And it felt like there was a shift now toward what is that role? Let's not have those big churches, but smaller churches, they're engaging their community. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the mission that we often um, offered up to the young person in a big church like that was ultimately help us help volunteer to help us run yeah, our programs. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we, we may have had a, an entrepreneurial CEO who was out there trying to change the world and make it a better place Monday through Saturday. But then on Sunday, we said, you know, what we really need you to do is collect the offering or be on the parking team yeah. or, you know, restock the coffee cups. 
And and for someone like that, that just that wasn't a big enough vision yep. for their life. And yep. so yep. for that younger millennial generation that was coming up wanting to get their hands dirty, what I saw back in Virginia was I couldn't get them to commit to yep. Sunday mornings in part because their lives were so engaged in the world around them. So I had friends who were starting, you know, ethical fashion companies with uh, women in Nicaragua, yeah. you know, and I had, uh, you know, others who were uh, working with artists and creatives and trying to disciple them late into the night on Saturday who weren't even up yet on Sunday morning. Yep. And yet we kept saying, no, 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 you have to come here. This is where the action is. And I realized, oh, this is crazy. Yep. You're out where the action is. How do we support you where you already are? And so I, I think you're right. The The generation that wants to get active, they really want to be out in the world and honestly, they want to be changing the world in a way that I'm not sure previous generations had a vision for. Um, some of the old paradigms around this world's going to burn. We're all going to go to heaven when we die. You know, let's focus our eyes on that rather than really kind of reclaiming the truth of Revelation 21, that the new Jerusalem comes down to earth, that we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes here. Right. And so if heaven's going to come here and if the kingdom is already breaking in, then there's work that we can do now that has eternal impact. And I sense so much that that 18 to 30 year old generation, they get that. They want to be a part of that in a way that is really refreshing for me as a leader from the older generation. Now, John, when you sit there and talk, like when you sit there and talk, I totally understand what you're saying. I totally resonate. When you share this with pastors, they see what you're doing. Do they understand what you're doing? They say, you're on the right track. Or do they say, I have zero clue what you're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, the answer is probably yes. I mean, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I have the opportunity with uh, an organization called Forge America yeah. to do some training at events like Exponential and to do some cohorts yeah. with um, you know leaders who are at. I mean, the big thing is if you're in an established church, an existing church that's been around for a while, you, you everyone is recognizing that what we're doing isn't working anymore. Got it. But but what they often say is, but we don't know what else to do, mm -hmm. you know? And so your first instinct is to just double down on what you've already been yep. doing, you know, yep. hire a, a cooler uh, young adult pastor or find a better venue or, you know, get better lights or, you know, find a, you know, whatever it is that, that you think is going to bring them in. Um, but ultimately that's, None of that matters because they're not coming anymore. And I saw that in Europe. You know, post-Christian world doesn't go to church ever, ever. It's not even on their radar. And so um, I think the, the biggest challenge, one, is trying to get them on this journey of unlearning all of their uh, um, paradigms, you know, and, and really trusting and believing you that the world is changing. And that's why, for me, going to Europe was so significant because when you cross that threshold, when you go into – kind of that liminal space, you know, even the hero's journey idea of like Frodo and Sam Baggins crossing out of the Shire. Once you go into a new world, it's much easier to get a new paradigm because you realize that the mental maps you've created don't fit the new world around you. You know, they only fit the city you live in, but you can't bring a, a map of Los Angeles to London and try to navigate London with them. You've got to throw it away and find a new map. And so for me, it was all about OK, I need to draw a new map for post-Christianity. Um, and I think for a lot of pastors, there's such a hard it's so hard to release that old map that you've lived by for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, and that old map has led you to do church a certain way that, for instance, build the big building, hire the big staff, have all the big programs. And so um, there's a temptation to either say if you're in your 50s, well, 
there's just enough fruit on the vine that I can kind of, I can coast to the end of my career, yeah. so to speak. You know, I mean, there's enough money for me to finish my, my career and then the next generation can do what they want. Um, or there's the, I think the, also the, temp, the, the challenge of thinking, if I actually change everything, what do I do with the 60 staff I've hired? Yeah. Cause I'm yeah. not gonna need 60 staff if I'm not building on programs or how do I pay for this building? So I have a lot of compassion for leaders. It's not one of these like, hey, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? I understand the challenge. Yeah. Many of these pastors, they care deeply about their staff. They care deeply about people whose lives, you know, they've called, hey, come, come, you know, build the kingdom with me. And to turn around all of a sudden and say, oh, by the way, now we're changing everything Correct. and you don't have a salary or health insurance anymore. It's a big challenge. And so I do think the big thing that I, you know, work on a lot with leaders is, change management in kind of a slow, yeah. steady, evolutionary approach rather than the revolutionary approach. You know, you don't get up one Sunday and blow up your church, you know, but how do you kind of seed innovation into yeah. your community slowly yeah. to a point where eventually the innovation becomes so compelling that it kind of tips the whole organization towards something new. And that's a lot of what I write about in my book is how we've been trying to do that within Ecclesia, yeah. that slow, steady, evolutionary adaptation process. And which actually, let's go to your book, is positive yeah. and irritating. And also, I think a lot of times, talk about that with Ecclesia. Is it more, eventually, you're going to have more bivocational pastors? What does Ecclesia look before five years ago? And what does it look like today, especially as outlined in your book? Yeah, you know that um, I've got a, a copy that just came in this week, kind of my pre-copy. But that that idea of positively irritating was based on this metaphor of uh, an oyster making a pearl. You know that the the catalyst for a pearl is actually an irritant in the skin of of the inside of an oyster. And what that oyster does is rather than try to expel the irritant, it surrounds the irritant with that hard surface. Mm -hmm substance called nacre which ends up you know making that beautiful pearl and it basically innovates around and around and around over and over again until eventually you have this pearl inside and that is the way it responds to irritation uh, and so how do you take the irritants of our life in the church which one of which is kind of this post-christian more secular culture that doesn't seem to value the church. The church doesn't have the institutional credibility anymore. We're kind of being decentered or marginalized. That can feel very irritating to people who've been used to being in the middle and doing things a certain way. How do you come around that irritant with something creative and make beauty out of it and, and believe that that's possible? And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're kind of trying to do as a, as a church and to come around that as a community. Um, and, you know, not everyone has come on that journey with us. We've had several people who have said, you know, I, I like the way churches operate. I, I prefer a certain way and I'm going to go find another church like that. Um, I mean, the history of Ecclesia is unique, but but um, but in a way kind of follows a little bit of what I think the, the history of many churches are, which is, you know, started about 15 years ago as an offshoot of a more traditional church, Hollywood Prez. Uh, it was a ministry of Hollywood Prez, and then during some difficult times there at First Prez um, Hollywood, they decided to break off and form their own community. They grew and ended up with kind of the the epic venue on Hollywood Boulevard at Pacific Theater and seven eight hundred people. And but it was very much that commuter. Everyone drives in from all over the city in order to be part of something where they can you know connect with other artists. And then they lost that venue and then had uh, some challenges over a, a pastor leaving. 
in kind of the Sunday vibe, you know, that used to be the thing that drew everyone kind of wasn't there anymore. You didn't yeah. have your epic, epic, you know, your charismatic leader. You didn't have your epic venue. All these other churches that were offering that same thing started popping up in Hollywood. Yeah. 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 New church in the last eight years offering a similar big Sunday morning production. And so next thing you know, you had a community that had shrunk basically in, in a third wondering who are we and what have we done? And why was it so easy for two thirds of our community to just walk away? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Maybe we weren't as effective as making disciples as we thought. Uh, and so I think that is, was what led them to kind of start asking, what would it look like to be a, a church that doesn't exist for our own members but a church where our members exist for the benefit of the city God, and where we help the city flourish, you know, in all the different domains of life. And so um, the kind of the, the journey of getting us to turn ourselves, you know, inside out, so to speak, has been the journey that we're on. Um, I'll give you one metaphor, Tommy, that we use that sometimes really connects with people. Um, one of the things I found in my own leadership journey in, in working with an organization is that, you know, language is so important. And if you can change pe- change a metaphor, you can often change people's minds about something, you know. And so the dominant metaphor in the church has been this idea of kind of a, a, a congregation of members. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know? And so what do congregations do? They congregate. And, and the word member is a term that we use to think about privilege and um, exclusivity, right? You know, even Costco membership, you know, you got to show your card to get in. Everyone wants you to be a member of their store because if you're a member, you feel like you get certain perks and privileges, right? right? Special coupons. Well, that's how the church tended to operate. You know, if you're a member here, there are certain perks that you get that the world doesn't have, so to speak. So we've been trying to change that metaphor from a congregation of members into more of a community of missionaries that's sent out. And so one of the um, images that felt perfect for LA for us was to make the shift from thinking of church as a restaurant yep. to church church as a fleet of food trucks. A, a, a restaurant exists yeah, in one, yeah. one place. It's brick and mortar centric. You often have one professional chef who runs the kitchen. You have a, a well-trained hospitality team that welcomes people. You've got a menu for every age of life, right? Yeah. Kids, seniors, um, you know, you've got uh, uh, convenient parking and good signage and you make it as easy as possible for people to find you. And if you're successful, you either expand on that property or you franchise to other places. And if the restaurant becomes really successful, the chef becomes a celebrity. Right. And they they sell cookbooks and they do book signings and all these sorts of things. And I realized, oh, my gosh, that's basically what the American church has become. It's a brick and mortar place. You come to us and we'll feed you. And if you had a good experience, bring your friends back. And if you bring enough friends back, we'll be able to expand. But what if you took that that image of a restaurant and instead used the metaphor of a fleet of food trucks, where the church was a group of, is a collection of small teams that was sent out into the city to serve a gospel meal in a specific network or neighborhood and to bring food that resonated with the people they were trying to reach. You know, and if it didn't resonate, they were small and nimble and adaptable enough that they could they could change their menu. They could adapt to the needs of the community around them. Um, if you've ever seen a you know a food truck, you know that usually has about three or four operators, maybe even only two operators. Often those operators are the owners, so they're very invested and they're always cross trained. They can either cook, yeah. they can take money. They're yeah. not above cleaning up afterwards if they need to. But that sort of ownership is rarely seen in a restaurant where when someone is done with their shift, they clock out and go home. Yeah. 
and they don't care about the place anymore. It's just a paycheck. That often is what churches feel like today. It's like, nah, I get my needs met and then I go home versus, man, this is my life. I love this. I love Jesus. I love his ministry. And I want to bring it out into the world in a way that connects, you know, with others. And so we've used that analogy in trying to kind of create food truck churches, small communities that can serve together to bring the kingdom into a neighborhood and kind of serve a meal that resonates with the, the gospel longings of people around them. Yeah. Now, so for you guys currently, which neighborhoods are you operating in Los Angeles then? So we, again, pre-COVID, we still had our central gathering in yeah. Hollywood, um, but we were in the process of beginning to launch more of these kind of neighborhoods. We had done a whole year of what we called a missional workshop every yeah. Sunday, sorry, one Sunday a month, we would cut our worship service down to about an hour. And then we would add on to that a very participatory uh, experiential workshop time where people were sitting in geographic neighborhoods um, and beginning to plan and strategize. In fact, the last Sunday before COVID, we had an event we called Pop-Up Sunday where we had, I think, six different kind of expressions of church around LA. None of them were primarily worship expressions. Most of them were more serving and and community expressions. We did a, a neighborhood cleanup at the local park here. Um, people did uh, a neighborhood book fair. Uh, it was LA Marathon Sunday. So there were teams out there serving marathon runners and yeah, helping yeah. clean up afterwards. And what was amazing was all these events were taking place on a Sunday morning. And so many of the events were able to invite friends who weren't followers of Jesus, who would never come to a church, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but thought this activity was fascinating and they wanted to be a part of it, you know? And so we were just kind of getting momentum for more of those neighborhood things. The, the most successful food trucks we've had have actually been within networks. So we have a, a, a co-working space in Hollywood called Epiphany Space that is embedded in the network of young creatives yeah, and artists, yeah, often yeah. filmmakers, writers who work individually. And so that's been one of our best kind of disciple making um, environments. And we've actually seen people, you know, make professions of faith out of there and people get baptized from that community. Um, and our Ecclesia staff actually kind of operates out of that co-working space to try to model this idea of yeah. living as missionaries out in the world, you know. Wow. Phenomenal. So as you start looking at this particular model and as churches start seeing and hearing what you're doing and start changing this post-Christian world, how are you going to see more bivocational pastors in churches? How does that look globally or even virtual churches? Have you thought through some of those things or have thoughts? Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges to people making the switch again is kind of the getting their head around the funding model, yeah, you know, because yeah, in, in the church growth movement, uh, people were paying for religious goods and services correct. in a sense. I mean, they were tithing with an expectation that there were certain things they were going to receive back. And when they go from being kind of consumers to creatives and producers themselves, Correct. one of the natural things they wonder is, well, then why am I giving you money if I'm, yeah. if I'm, you know, because actually I have places I'd like to invest my resources in as I do ministry myself, you know? And so we want to celebrate that. We want to celebrate that, you know, you may be able to use your resources to bless people in your neighborhood in a disciple making way that as a centralized church, we would never know about. Um, And so you have to come up with a model that is more financially sustainable. And so, yeah, yeah, I think that every young church planter I meet, everyone who's under the age of 30, who's thinking about getting into starting a church, I say, 
you know, um, you've got to have a side hustle. You've got to have yes. some way, yep, yep. you know, and, and anytime I hear someone saying, I'm going to quit my job as this in order to be a pastor, I go, no, 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 stop. Don't do that. That's a really bad idea. Keep your job as that because it'll actually make you a better pastor and it gives you a mission field that you can model the way that we all yep. need to be living, yep. you know? Um, and so don't go isolate yourself in the ivory tower, so to speak, stay out in the world and model this new way of being. So even, yeah. even as a leader myself, I've said to my staff, Hey, I want to go first. So I've been kind of putting feelers out there trying to find some yep. kind of marketplace yep. income that would allow me to eventually begin to reduce the yeah. financial burden that I am with my salary on my local church. You know, my, one of my dreams would be to be a, a pastor or a network leader that took no money from a religious community, yep, yep, took yep. all my money from the marketplace, but still was investing in empowering, yep. you know, believers to do the same thing. John, one of the things that I got frustrated, I worked in two church environments mm -hmm. and by the third year of the same old, Hey, you got to work on small groups. You got to work on Christmas. You got to work on Easter, all of that stuff. Hey, you have to be here in time for staff meetings. Mm. I got frustrated with the routine. I realized pretty fast I could not work in the church full time. But now I get a chance to work five different hats. Mm. And so I get a chance to start a business in Jakarta. I get a chance to work with Nairobi with marketplace leaders or Malaysia or Singapore. I get a chance to work with the seminary. It gives me freedom that taps into my skill, but gives me the ability to draw in income so my wife won't kill me and that I'm able to support <laughs> our kids and all that stuff, but still feel like I'm contributing to the global church as well, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, um, one of the things that we say in Forge a lot was that, you know, Jesus... Um, was embedding in the world as a human for 30 years before he ever revealed himself to be the Messiah. He basically yeah. spent 30 years fitting in, you know? And I think, sadly, so many uh, professional pastors, so many yeah. professional Christian leaders don't really fit in to the world. Yes. Um, and I don't mean fit in as in like they're going along with the flow and, and you know, and, and sinning like others are sinning. But I just mean that they're not embedded. They're not they're not incarnating God in a way that connects with others around them. Yeah. And so when you have a job in the marketplace, when you have organizations that you're running that are, you know, across the globe, even I think it makes you a little bit more fleshy in a good way. It makes you a little bit. It gives you a little bit more connection. It's, you're not just a disembodied spirit, but you're a person who can relate to other people, you know. And so I, I think that's so important um, to to not isolate away from the world, but to embed in the world the way Jesus did and then become that redemptive presence out in the world. Yeah. Or even a lot of times I look at the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a government official who later on in life, probably in his early to mid 60s, decides that, man, I am burdened to serve and do something to rebuild a wall. But he had enough credibility with the king that the king gave him all the resources as his biggest donor to fund the whole project. So now he's still getting paid as a government official, I'm assuming, to volunteer his time to rebuild the wall and go back to his old job. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, all the Old Testament is filled with especially all the exile stories, which I think exile is a great metaphor for, yeah. for the church coming forward. All those exilic stories are filled with people who have other professions. You know, I mean, who are, uh, you know, leaders of the Jews in exile, but honestly, they're doing it from the place of, you know, the royal palace or doing it from some sort of a professional job that they 
granted they've been forced into it, but they're embracing it and doing it with excellence in a way that honors God and earns credibility and then also becomes a blessing to those that they're serving. And so, and a couple last questions. Sure. The traditional four-year motto is four-year seminary, three, four years, you get an MDiv. From that point, you work nine to five as your traditional pastor in a job. And I think a lot of times the traditional seminaries, $30,000, $40,000, depending on where you're going. How does the role of seminary change and the training of pastors change, not only in the U.S., but all over the world, as this model continues to take shape, you think? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, you know, the training and equipping, especially around handling God's word, caring for God's people, um, wisdom in leadership, all, all that is is important and that won't go away. I think the challenge is that, um, you know, in a Christendom culture, you could invest or take out $40,000 in loans and assume that that was a good investment because down the road there was going to be a yep. job waiting for you that would pay that back in the same way that a lawyer or a doctor takes out the big loans and then eventually, you know, gets debt free. Um, that sort of investment isn't, it's not a good, it's not good stewardship anymore because there may not be that money on the back end to pay it out. And then you just end up straddled in debt. The other thing is traditionally seminaries that have operated out of this more kind of Greek or Western, um, culture, they tend to be what we call just in case education. You know, we're going to teach all this stuff just in case you need it. Um, and, and you may not need it for 10 years, but just in case, we'll tell it to you and you'll have it in a file somewhere. I think that the church is, is celebrating and kind of circling back to more of this Hebraic Eastern way of what we like to call just in time learning, yeah. where um, you learn as you're doing. And so, you know, Jesus sends his disciples out to preach the gospel, you know, within probably six months of them following him. They have no idea what the gospel really is. They don't even, they could hardly articulate the kingdom of God, but he's like, go do it. And then they come back and you can imagine them asking all their questions. And so now he has this teachable moment and he gives them a little bit of training and then he sends them out again. And so, you know, that just in time model of action and then reflection and then new learning, I think that is going to be how we train our, our leaders and our pastors more going forward, where every local church needs to have that sort of a, an internship or a training academy, which really is it's just a, a discipleship program for its people yeah. that we're not going to do eight weeks of how to make a disciple and then you'll go do it. But we're going to give you a little bit of information and have you activate on it. And then we'll come back and talk about it. And then we'll give you a little bit more, uh, much more the way that we think of parenting, you know, which really was honestly the, the, the Hebrew model of discipleship. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6, right, it was parents impressing these things upon their children and talking about them as they walked and as they were at home and, you know, teachable moments. And it also can include not only just professors, but pastors like yourself who have experience or even marketplace leaders that help people process that gives them a different dialogue that they experience in the workplace as well too. Yeah. And that's why I love that uh, you were mentioning some programs that you're operating with. I know Fuller uh, Seminary, Northern Seminary, these, these schools that are trying to create online platforms so that you don't need to move across the country to enroll in a three, four year program like I did when I went to Chicago at Trinity. But you can stay where you are. You can stay embedded. You can keep your profession, but we can educate you along the way and we can kind of give you classes that fit the tangible day to day struggles and challenges yeah. that you have as a disciple maker. You know, uh, I think that that is a much more effective model going forward. Yeah, perfect. Hey, more information about your book. If they want to buy your book, where can they buy it from? 
Yeah. So um, right now, I've it come, comes out November 16th. Uh, so I'm, I'm fulfilling pre-orders on John Rittner, J-O-N Rittner, R-I-T-N-E-R.com. But starting November 16th, you can get it on Amazon or any other online retailers. And one day when we can walk back into a bookstore, you might be able to get it there too. Sean, thank you so much. And looking forward to hearing more about your book and from that point on following your journey and catching up with you another time. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Tony. We'll talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Together LA Listening Tour. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe to the Together LA channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with Together LA on Instagram, Facebook, and our website at www.togetherla.net. See you next time.